For more standalone bonus episodes like this one, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial. This episode contains sexual violence. One hundred years ago, the 1920 presidential election is the first since World War I. The Democratic incumbent, President Wilson, is unpopular and unhealthy. The effects of the 1918 flu pandemic are still lingering, even in the White House. President Woodrow Wilson downplayed the pandemic, calling it the ordinary flu by another name. As Wilson negotiates at the Paris Peace Conference following the war, he becomes ill, likely contracting the 1918 flu. He wants to run for a third term as president, but everyone knows he's too sick. Ohio Democratic Governor James Cox campaigns for president with his running mate, FDR, and the Republican Party turns to a dark horse. Ohio Republican Senator Warren G. Harding and his running mate, Calvin Coolidge. Interestingly, three out of four of these men will become president at some point. Warren Harding basically just campaigns against the incumbent, President Wilson, not his opponent, James Cox. Harding said, America's present need is not to heroics, but healing, not nostrums, but normalcy, not revolution, but restoration. Normalcy. A lot of Harding's critics say that the word normalcy is kind of a made-up word at this time. The papers even start replacing it with the correct word, normality, and Harding says, I have noticed that the word caused considerable news editors to change it to normality. I have looked for normality in my dictionary, and I do not find it there. Normalcy, however, I did find, and it is a good word. Harding's critics mock his limited knowledge of the English language. You might say they make fun of him bigly. Wilson's Treasury Secretary, William McAdoo, says a Harding speech is an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. Sometimes these meandering words actually capture a straggling thought and bear it triumphantly, a prisoner in their midst, until it died of servitude and overwork. Cultural critic H.L. Mencken writes of Senator Harding's speeches, It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a kind of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abysm of pish. It crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of tosh. It is rumble and bumble. It is balder and dash. The New York Times describes Harding's ability to speak for the everyman, a reflection of their own indeterminate thoughts. Harding's own biographer will write that Harding had a good mind, but he simply made little use of it. Many papers will say Harding is not qualified for the job. He is weak and mediocre, never had an original idea. Harding is immediately supported by Republican papers. Hearst papers claim he is the flag bearer of a new senatorial autocracy. From his own front porch, Harding campaigns for what he calls a return to normalcy. Cox and Roosevelt travel the nation stumping, but Harding wants to be perceived as the nostalgic man at home on the porch. Warren Harding is the son of an Ohio farmer and the editor of their small town paper. He's rural and handsome in a three-piece suit and seems likable enough, especially if you're into stopping immigration and socialists and radicals and labor unions and keeping the country out of the League of Nations, which aims for maintaining world peace. No, 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 not world peace. Harding would rather return to normalcy. I am not making a word of this up. 
Harding wants to make America great again. But he was an unlikely candidate for the Republicans, especially because everyone knows Harding loves bootleg liquor. Prohibition just started in January. Everyone also knows Harding has multiple extramarital affairs. He has obviously dubious business pals who will lead to scandal. Ever heard of the Teapot Dome scandal? And most of all, Harding clearly has no interest in actual big ideas to help the country. One newspaper editor writes that Senator Harding is almost unbelievably ill-informed about most issues. But the country is in a post-war recession. As labor strikes hit the picket lines and race riots break out in Chicago, the KKK is marching through the streets with signs proclaiming America first. But the press depicts radicals as Eastern European or Mediterranean immigrants, often Jews and Catholics. There's so much fear in the world. And many people just want to return to what they recognize as normalcy. After two bombings at the house of Attorney General Palmer, the Justice Department sends local police to round up communists and political radicals. They raid homes, businesses, organizations, all without search warrants. These are the Palmer raids of the first Red Scare, and they put thousands of people in custody without cause and lead to more than 500 deported immigrants. The case is taken by young J. Edgar Hoover at the Bureau of Investigation, who compiles the list of immigrants to blame for the bombing. As he works this case, he begins compiling another famous list of suspicious radicals and subversives. Attorney General Palmer says, The alien filth who have unclean doctrines should be silenced and kicked out. Two months before the election, a hidden bomb in a horse carriage explodes on Wall Street, killing 38, injuring hundreds, the press splashing the bloody news all over the page. The New York Times gives it 17 pages of speculation. Who did this? It's a shocking event, but not unforeseeable. The Washington Post writes, It is not surprising that the massacre was accomplished in New York. It would have been surprising if this festering sore had not come to its horrid head. Many voters feel communist revolution coming. There is a xenophobic and desperate turn to the man who promises them a return to normalcy. Sitting by the radio on November 2nd, 1920, listeners wait as votes come in almost as quickly as they're being cast. This is the first election broadcasting returns over the radio, and it's the first election women can vote in, so the number of votes has increased dramatically. Americans listen in intently, live, as Harding wins the presidency in a landslide. He sweeps. That map is red. And he actually won the popular vote. Both houses of Congress and many state legislatures also go to the Republicans. The New York Times calls it a startling electoral avalanche that astonished even the most sanguine Republican leaders. The next morning, the New York Daily News headline declares, Now let's get back to work. Harding announces he'll be going on vacation and no decisions will be made until he returns to Ohio in December after a month of fishing, sailing, and golf. The New York Daily News editor writes that this is a win for the country. Harding was elected because he believed in America first and Europe afterward. Later that night, on East 44th Street, Leeds Von Waters lets loose at the Delta Kappa Epsilon Club 
a 13-story private gentleman's club. He's 48, been a member since college. It has squash courts, mahogany, you get it, very 1920s Fraser. Leeds Von Waters likes to play cards and gamble some of his family's piano manufacturing fortune. Around 1 a.m., he tells his friends he's leaving to return to Bronxville, a suburb north of the city where he's staying with his mother at her hotel. Waters gets in a taxi and requests to go a few blocks west to Times Square. It's a not-quite-yet-seedy theater district, but certainly already a cruising ground. It's an underground but known location in the queer world. Just west of Times Square is New York's Tenderloin, another vice-riddled neighborhood. The West 40s and 50s are known for queer men who work in the theaters. Leeds Von Waters allegedly dines there tonight, on 9th Avenue and West 44th, with a man he just met in Times Square in the early morning hours. Witnesses see Waters buy the man a meal, and an apple for himself. They arrive at Plymouth Hotel on West 38th at 6 a.m. They approach the night clerk, John Carney. Carney thinks they're a bizarre pair, and he'll tell the police so. He'll tell the cops Waters was expensively dressed, light overcoat, a fashionably cut blue suit, patent leather shoes, and he carried a silver-headed walking stick. And the other guy wore shabby clothes and seemed to be of much inferior social standing, the night clerk says. Leeds signs into the guest book, Jay Talbot from Milwaukee. The companion writes, James Dunn, also from Milwaukee. Carney gives them the key for room 805 on the top floor, looking out over West 38th. Carney remembers they didn't need a bellhop because they had no luggage. Pretty normal for the Plymouth. One hour later. Guests in the next room call the front desk to complain about the noise in 805. Carney and the bellhop take the elevator up and knock on the door. The door suddenly opens, and James Dunn looks at Carney. Is everything all right? Carney asks. Suddenly, Carney and the bellhop are pushed out of the way, and the man rushes down the stairway. Carney and the bellhop chase him down eight flights, out a side entrance, east toward the 7th Avenue crowds, into which the man vanishes. The doctors arrive first. They declare Leeds Von Waters dead. Police arrive minutes later. Detectives look through his letters and personal items to learn his legal name. November 4th, 1920, the New York Tribune front page catches eyes at the newsstand, murdered in hotel room. While the New York Times is reporting, Mr. Harding begins well, the salacious pages of the Tribune describe the ugly side. A wealthy man in a fine blue suit and silver walking stick murdered by a companion who wore a cheap cap which he kept well pulled down over his eyes. The New York Daily News is reporting that same day on their front page, declaring it the city's 100th murder of the year. Robbery was not the motive for the crime, as money and jewelry, including a massive gold ring, were found on the scene, the Daily News reports. A friend of Leeds Von Waters tells the paper he knew of no acquaintances of Waters by the name of Dunn. The Daily News describes the beating of Waters in the 38th Street Plymouth Hotel room, a fractured jaw and skull, and a deep wound over his left eye, which was apparently inflicted by a blunt instrument. They report he was only 48, from a well-off New England family. He lived in London. The Daily News says his life was a series of kaleidoscopic glimpses of social activities in North and South America, in England, and on the continent. So if it's not robbery, what's the motive? Detectives are stumped. And the Daily News has found a compelling little serial to run with. 
According to friends, the Daily News editors write, Waters has never been engaged in industry and has never been known to exert himself to labor. Riches and idleness are shown as powerful influences toward his tragic end. How he was lured from his usual haunts along the rosy path of luxury to hostelry of the character of that which he was slain is a point of mystery which no one has been able to solve. Riches and Idleness in the 1920s, there are tons of sensationalistic murder mystery stories to follow in the papers. Victorian America was obsessed with true crime, so now the papers have all sorts of ways of compelling the reader to follow a case, like a sex panic. The fun twist of a gay sex panic is that it all has to be written in suggestive code. Idleness is a code word. They're saying he's so rich and bored that he's doing strange things like, you know, gay things. The press did the same thing with Leopold and Loeb in Chicago, but in this case, with Waters, it's victim-blaming. But either way, implying queer behavior is another lurid tale, and they bring it all to life, inviting readers into the minds of the detectives on the case, inside the courtrooms, to experience the sordid mystery up close. Queer men giving false names, sometimes married, sometimes different races, sometimes sailors, sometimes of drastically different ages or classes, found, stabbed, shot, strangled in hotel rooms, public parks, apartments, subway bathrooms. Historian James Polshin will write that these stories pack the pleasure of a murder mystery and the shock of a morality tale. These are not just about telling the public about a local crime, because they're so editorialized and told with such theatricality, they teach the reader about whatever the newspaper considers the morality of their time. And it teaches what the reader should consider normal and abnormal. Readers are captivated. And now even more so, because this disturbing case of Leeds Von Waters and the so-called James Dunn, it has no motive, unless it is surmised by a reporter. The final hours of Waters' life are combed over by papers nationwide. The New York Times reports that Waters met a swarthy, dark-skinned man who was believed to be the one who shared the hotel room. Another reports the companion as a slovenly dressed man. The Washington Post front page on November 5th reports silk underwear clue to Slayer. Apparently, this underwear has the initials WHA, and this pair has been traced to a laundry in 59th Street, where it was recently cleaned. The papers are hinting that the killer must have been naked that morning. Honestly, this becomes pretty cliche hack writing even for the 1920s. Working class immigrants plus sexual vice. The New York Times adds the next day, Seek swarthy man as water slayer. Also printed on the 6th, the Daily News says detectives have a theory that the killer is a notorious character of the Tenderloin District from a gang of leeches who work the White Light District and are known to prey on wealthy idlers. A few days later, November 11th, the St. Louis Dispatch weighs in. There are mysteries all around the crime. The act was clearly the work of a person with an abnormal mind. While speculating on the mind of the killer, the press also considers the state of Leeds Von Waters' idle mind. That same article also reveals new mysteries of the victim's mind. Their headline is, Waters' murder recalls career of Baroness Blanc. Waters had been married. Most of the papers put Baroness in quotation marks. Elizabeth Nicholson was an opera and vaudeville actress known to move through social circles. She was a friend of Lily Langtree. And she was once reported on as a woman who streaked across society once in a generation. She sounds like Maris Crane. Her second marriage earned her the unofficial title Baroness, 
which she used because she married a man named Baron, not a Baron. So her fake title was hers to lose or keep when the marriage ended after the honeymoon. When Leeds von Waters graduated college in 1896, he and the so-called Baroness wed secretly, lived together for a month, and then the Baroness went to France and later got a divorce in Chicago. Waters' mother tells police that her son had never married. So that's an odd piece for the newspaper readers to consider. The press also considers his gambling. The Daily News wonders if he might have been lured to the scene of his death by the promise of a game of chance. The Washington Post says he suffered from heavy gambling losses. The assistant DA makes a statement to the press saying this murder wasn't planned. This victim, quote, who is said to have been a gambler and who might have been in the habit of picking up strangers, took the man who registered under the name of James Dunn to the Plymouth Hotel. That this man became infuriated when he discovered Waters only had the change from a $10 bill and the fight which ended in murder followed. The Daily News reports the killer surely dealt with a morass of gambling, thieving, and murder, the haunts of sin and crime. The sexual nature of the crime is seemingly overlooked but obvious and implied with words like sin. The case gets colder. A 1930s queer murder mystery. So sordid, it shocked even the hardened police. Asked, has my Johnny been in here? Was he caught in last night's raid? The gayest songs on wax. Homosexuals congregated in the Black Cat restaurant. All you have to do is walk around town and uh, into the bars and see the screaming memes because they are so obvious. If this attitude can be changed, then the mannerisms will no longer be of any significance. Real 1950s San Franciscans fighting out the issues on the radio. I was at something in Buffalo, New York called the Allentown Art Fair, probably in the summer of 69, I think. And these two sort of like long-haired, fabulous, interesting-looking people came up and handed us a pamphlet about Gay Liberation Front and wanted to talk with us about it. Interviews with real activists from the movement and voice actors from the podcast. A little gossip. So my, my dad's family and my mom's family grew up in the same neighborhood in the south side. So the families knew each other really well. And so I found out that... <laughs> My Uncle Tony and my Uncle uh, uh, Robert dated. They probably felt like the only two in the probably. world. Probably. <laughs> Especially at the time, they probably probably the only ones in the world. Yeah. Crossover episodes from this podcast. Dr. William Gilbert told me himself during our final session that the FBI had asked about me. I believe the university is keeping me from finding steady work and I demand to see my file. I'm sorry, Mr. Huggins. This devil life caught up with me, and to prison I went. I'm one of the outcasts, as we're called here in Kentucky. We have just said that homosexuals are different. Why can't they have a different set of conventions? Do you think that there's some kind of problem the police are trying to get at, or what? I think I think it's more or less personal. I, I don't think it's to obtain the law or to uphold the law. I think that they're trying to break you down mentally. The homosexual is possibly, on the average, more gifted. Listen to bonus episodes right now and twice a month on my Patreon. It's $3 a month, and it includes more rewards like buttons, books, mugs, credit on episodes, and exclusive photos. Oh, and coming up, 
a bonus miniseries of episodes about a 1950s sex panic in one small town that turned into a vicious witch hunt. It's another true story with cruising, cover-ups, a queen, a murder, relentless illegal interrogations. It's a story that goes higher up than anyone in town knew, except a journalist who almost never made it out of town to tell the tale. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash queer serial. What is acceptable sexual behavior on the part of a homosexual? I, I must, if I may break in and just say one thing. I feel that all my life I have had the feeling of being a female and trapped in the body of a male. The stunt pulling days of government agents and security officers are over. Two weeks later. Frank Barber, a 48-year-old chauffeur, is walking along a path from the USS Arizona to Central Park with a sailor named Charles Becker. Three men with caps pulled down over their faces approach Frank and Charles and ask Frank for a match. As the sailor Charles offers the match, the tallest of the three men draws a revolver and shoots Frank. Charles will add that he didn't see any of these three men physically hit Frank. Or maybe that's not how it happened. That's what Charles told the Daily News in their article of November 24th. Maybe it happened like this. Charles, the sailor, is walking alone through Central Park, where he sees Frank Barber sitting on a park bench, and he asks him for a match. He then walks toward the Central Park entrance and hears somebody yell, hands up. Charles turns around and sees Frank Barber surrounded by three men. When Barber shouts for help, the three men run and one of them fires a shot. That's what Charles apparently told the New York Tribune. But maybe it really happened like this. Charles is leaving, not entering Central Park, when he sees the three men approach Frank Barber. One asks for a match. Frank begins to fumble in his clothes. So Charles steps in and says, never mind, buddy, I'll give them a match. One of the three men pull out a pistol and point it at Frank's head. Frank shouts, I won't let you rob me. A flash, and Frank hits the ground. The three men run east into the park, and Charles runs to a hotel to call the cops. At least, that's the version of the story Charles told the police, who gave the information to the New York Times for their front-page story about the man mysteriously shot and left near the Central Park 72nd Street entrance. The Daily News says Frank Barber walks there every night because of his poor health. The New York Times also reports that the assistant medical examiner determined Frank Barber had depressed fractures of the forehead and a compound fracture of the skull. The doctor says, Frank Barber died of severe blunt force to the head. The shooting came after a physical attack killed him. Charles Becker's story changes in every newspaper's report, but one thing remains consistent. He left out this important detail of the attack. No journalist or detective follows up on this mysterious oversight. December 6th, 1920. The New York Daily News reports that two detectives are on the case, one from the NYPD and one from the Naval Intelligence Bureau, and they led a general roundup of idle ex-servicemen who have been seen loitering around Times Square and Columbus Circle. About 50 men, including deserters from the Navy and former sailors, were included in the roundup. 
The New York Tribune, three days later, also reports on this joint crusade of the police department and the Naval Intelligence Bureau against ex-servicemen alleged to be preying upon habitues of the Times Square and Central Park District. Cops are rounding up cruisers to question for the murder. The Tribune also adds that one former sailor arrested while cruising there had hair which is naturally brown but had been dyed yellow. And for the first time that I've ever seen in queer history, a major roundup in a gay sex panic actually got genuine confessions. A 24-year-old sailor in the Navy named John Reedy tells the detectives that he met Leeds Vaughn Waters in Times Square at a subway station at 4 a.m. They went to a hotel and drank whiskey from Waters' flask, John Reedy says they had a quarrel, and he punched Waters, then grabbed his cane and struck him over the head. Waters fell to the floor and struck his head against the bed railing. Police take John to the Plymouth, where the hotel clerk identifies him as the killer. John Reedy is told to write the name James Dunn, and his handwriting is compared. Reedy is charged with second-degree murder. The police make no note explaining what John Reedy and Leeds Vaughn Waters fought about. John Reedy was a sailor from the same ship as Charles Becker, who claimed to have seen Frank Barber shot in Central Park. Reedy had abandoned the USS Arizona in the Brooklyn Navy Yard back in August, and Charles Becker is now held in the naval brig, as he is discovered as an ex-convict, which he never told the Navy. The sailor's role in the scene at Frank Barber's death in Central Park is never confirmed. A 25-year-old who lives in the Tenderloin named Charles Benner is charged for shooting Frank Barber, and two others are held as material witnesses. The New York Daily News calls these men members of a gang of leeches who prey upon rich men under the influence of liquor, robbing and often killing them. The article has mugshots of Reedy and Benner, both in big tweed caps. There's also a photo of detectives at the location of the murder, with one of the material witnesses pointing toward the pavement as they all look on, trying to unravel this mystery. April, 1921. John Reedy goes to trial. The judge clears the courtroom audience. This hotel room case is too graphic. Reedy takes the stand wearing his naval uniform. He looks wholesome. The New York Times reports that Reedy testifies that he didn't intend to kill Leeds Von Waters, but Waters had insulted him and he struck him. The press also doesn't explain this insult. The reader must speculate. April 10th, 1921. The Wisconsin State Journal prints the headline, Acquit Wisconsin Sailor of Slaying. They argue that John Reedy was defending himself after Waters had attacked him. Two days of testimony, and the jury finds John Reedy not guilty. Had Leeds Vaughn Waters survived the attack, what would he have done? If he lived and went to the police and told them all of the information we've learned about that night, what is so obvious to us would also be obvious to the police. Waters had taken the man he just met in Times Square to a hotel for a sexual encounter. Sodomy is, of course, illegal. The police would have said that the attack against Waters was his own fault, a twisted crime gone wrong, and perhaps the result of an indecent advance. This is sort of a catch-all euphemistic term, a code phrase, for many types of sexual assaults of the time, especially in queer cases. An attacker justifies their actions because of the victim's indecent advances. 
Built on cases like that of Leeds von Waters, defendants in the 1930s will increasingly tell their tales of what some papers refer to as an honor slayer, calling those who were murdered refined and slender men. Reporters will note the young face of a killer, so innocent. Who is the real victim here? The preyed-upon young man or the dead pervert who's so gross we have to talk about him in code? Three weeks later, the other Charles, not the sailor Charles Becker, but Charles Benner, who was charged for shooting Frank Barber, he goes to trial. The press barely covers it. A small mention in the New York Herald on page four. Benner, a member of a band which operated during a crime wave last winter, was found guilty of murder in the second degree in the killing of Frank Barber. No other New York papers report on this trial. Barber and Waters' killers were found in the same roundup, but Leeds Von Waters was wealthy, so that story was salacious. An average person shot by another average person in the park? It doesn't splash. And as if the apathy wasn't obvious, the Herald's editors even misspell Frank Barber's last name this time, the final article covering his murder. Cases claiming indecent advances aren't new, but they pick up steam along with all the fear-mongering of the era. Anti-immigrant and anti-queer stories like that of Leeds Von Waters and his killer are a fun read for people who don't feel sympathy for either of them. President Harding holds office for about two and a half years until his death, after which, shocker, many scandals will be revealed, including Teapot Dome, which will be considered the greatest political scandal in America until Watergate. Well beyond this era, coded reports of gay men murdered continue to captivate readers, and coverage becomes more blatant over time, especially as the homophile organizations begin to cover the stories. The New York Mattachine newsletter warns readers of men found in the water on the Christopher Street piers during the same 1969 summer of the Stonewall riots. Police rarely bother to solve these cases, but those killers who are caught use the claim of indecent advances to get away with murdering gay people, or as it will later be called, the gay panic defense. And it'll still be used for the next century, as recently as 2018 in Texas. Now fewer gay men are killed a century later, but this defense has also been used to justify killing trans women. Under heightened transphobia encouraged by the president, approximately 28 trans women were murdered in 2018, and all but one were women of color. 26 transgender people were murdered in 2019, and already 33 transgender people have been murdered in 2020. It's a disproportionately high rate, and these victims are almost always people of color. As President Trump continues to push racist messages, cut healthcare for trans people, and campaign to make America great again, Joe Biden recently announced, violence against transgender and gender nonconforming people, particularly black and brown transgender women, is an epidemic that needs national leadership. Solving this epidemic of violence doesn't just require a president who actually recognizes it as fact, but one who believes in the humanity and dignity of transgender people. I believe that trans lives matter, and as president, I will fight on behalf of every vulnerable person in this country. January 1943. Tennessee Williams writes in his diary. Unhappily, I can't go into details. It was a case of guilt and shame in which I was relatively the innocent party, since I merely offered entertainment, which was accepted with apparently gratitude until the untimely entrance of other parties. 
feel a little sorrowful about it. So unnecessary. The sort of behavior pattern imposed by the conventional falsehoods. Why do they strike us? What is our offense? We offer them a truth which they cannot bear to confess except in privacy and the dark, a truth which is inherently as bright as the morning sun. He struck me because he did what I did, and his friends discovered it. Yes, it hurt, inside. I do not know if I will be able to sleep, but tomorrow, I suppose, the swollen face will be normal again, and I will pick up the usual thread of life. A few weeks later, Tennessee Williams is assaulted again, nearly robbed, and held hostage in his home for an hour. The next day, he writes in his diary that the night was the most shocking experience I've ever had with another human being. We've almost reached Election Day 2020. I hope we leave behind these antiquated values from a century ago, but it's gonna require a lot of work, and it begins with your vote. Please make sure you have a plan for Election Day. If you're into standalone queer history stories like this one, check out my bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial. The bonus show has all sorts of standalone stories like this one and crossover stories with queer serial, interviews with real activists, and soon a new miniseries about a 1950s sex panic in one small town that turned into a vicious witch hunt. It's another true story with cruising, cover-ups, a queen, a murder, relentless illegal interrogations. It's a story that goes higher up than anyone in the town knew, except for a journalist who almost never made it out of town to tell the tale. You can hear that new miniseries on my bonus podcast at patreon.com slash queer serial for just $3 a month. It's two episodes per month, and that comes along with all sorts of other bonus content, like photos through my research process, buttons and mugs for you, and even books. Click the link in the episode notes to see everything that's there. And if you have a sec, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes so it can be boosted to more listeners. I know there are thousands of you listening who haven't rated the podcast, and that would be a huge help. Thank you so much to everyone who already has. Resources for this episode can be found at QueerSerial.com. The most helpful for this story is James Polshin's fairly new book, Indecent Advances. It's a history of queer murder cases by decade throughout the 20th century, examined by the politics of each era. It's fascinating. You can put faces to the names and look through the queer publications from the podcast on my Instagram at Queer Serial, and subscribe to my newsletter at the link in the episode notes for periodic updates on all my little projects. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. Please, please, please go vote. Bye.